Senator Robert Francis Kennedy died at 1.44 a.m. today, June 6, 1968. The assassination of Robert Kennedy, gunned down in a grimy hotel pantry in Los Angeles, erased in one terrifying moment all the progress Jackie had made since her husband's murder in Dallas. It was stunning, shattering, and the event that would drive Jackie into the arms of her second husband. I'm Paul Brandis. You're listening to Jackie, a podcast about my book that explores Jacqueline Kennedy's life from November 1963 to October 1968, her transformation from First Lady to Jackie O. Jackie had rushed to California to see Bobby before he died. It was a ghastly sight. There was no hope he'd been shot in the brain, but Ethel Kennedy would not, could not sign the form that would allow doctors to switch off equipment that was keeping her husband alive. So Jackie signed, and then it was all over. A noble and compassionate leader, a good and faithful servant of the people, in the full vigor of his promise, lies dead from an assassin's bullet. As was the case in November 1963, the task of speaking to a horrified nation about a Kennedy assassination fell upon President Lyndon Johnson. The tragedy and the senseless violence of Robert F. Kennedy's death casts a deep shadow of grief across America and across the world. Johnson sent one of his presidential jets to Los Angeles to retrieve the body. Jackie panicked. She was scared that LBJ had sent aircraft 26,000, the tail number of the jet that President Kennedy had used as Air Force One, the very same plane that Jackie had flown back from Dallas on with her own husband's coffin after he was gunned down. At first, she refused to board the plane at LAX, thinking it was that very plane. She only got on board after being assured that it was a different aircraft. For this series, I've spoken at length with Clint Hill, who was Jackie's Secret Service agent in the White House and famously jumped onto JFK's death car in Dallas to protect her. The prospect of her flying across the country again, just less than five years after that had happened uh, before, what must that have been like? It had to be devastating for her. That entire... Episode had to have been just crashing. She thought very, very highly of Bobby. She was like a sister to him. Another assassination, another plane ride. But this time, there were three widows on board. Ethel Kennedy, Coretta Scott King, who had also rushed to California, and, of course, Jackie. The three women chatted quietly as the 707 raced across the troubled and grieving country. One reporter, George Herman of CBS, said, quote, You are forced to think of what a burden of tragedy this plane carries, what a burden of death and sadness and sorrow. 
During the flight, Jackie called Ross Gilpatrick. They were in a relationship at the time. According to Gilpatrick, she said, tell me this is all a bad dream, that I'm going to wake up and everything will be all right again. If only that were so. Bobby's funeral mass at St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York, Jackie crumbled, breaking down in tears before the candlelit beer. She was utterly destroyed. Her mother-in-law, Rose Kennedy, in agony herself after losing yet another son to madness, wrapped both arms around her. Longtime Kennedy aide Pierre Salinger said Jackie seemed in a trance, just completely in shock. It defied belief, he said, that she, that we, would be reliving this nightmare. As Jackie exited onto Fifth Avenue after the service, Lady Bird Johnson, the First Lady, reached out her hand and called out to Jackie by name. She looked at me as if from a great distance, as if I were an apparition, Lady Bird would write in her diary. She had seen that look before in Dallas on November 22, 1963. The train carrying the body of Senator Kennedy arrives almost five hours after it was scheduled. The body was taken to Washington by train. When it arrived, who did Jackie run into? Clint Hill, who was helping to guard President Johnson. I'd gone to President Johnson in New York to the funeral and they brought the senator's body down on a train, and we had flown back to Washington. And then we went to Union Station to meet the train with carrying the body. And at that time, uh, Mrs. Kennedy was there, and I did approach her and you know offered my condolences. And we had very, very brief conversation. That was it. And they asked what you said to her and what she said. Or I was terribly sorry for what had happened to the senator. Uh, it was uh, something that. Uh, which could have been prevented. What did she say? Just thank me. And, and did you give her a hug or anything? No. Or something no. like that? Okay. For the past four and a half years, Jackie had been trying to forget the pain and horror of her husband's murder. Now, here she was, crossing paths with the one man who was with her every step of the way in Dallas. Clint Hill, present at the murder of one Kennedy, and now at the funeral of another. Their sad, brief meeting at the train station would be the last time that Jackie and Hill would ever meet. After Bobby was laid to rest, the first person ever buried at Arlington at night, Jackie quietly walked with Caroline and John to the grave of her husband, their father, who lay beneath the orange and yellow flame that flickered in the darkness. As she knelt to leave some daisies, John heard his mother whisper, Oh, Jack, oh, Bobby. In that hot summer of 1968, Jackie was panicking again, suffering from nightmares. The post-traumatic stress disorder we talked about in an earlier episode had never really gone away and was now back with a vengeance. At one point, she reportedly told Pierre Salinger that she now despised America. I don't want my children to live here anymore, she said. If they're killing Kennedys, my kids are the number one targets. I have the two main targets— I want to get out of this country. Salinger makes no mention of this anecdote in his memoirs, so whether Jackie really said it or not can be questioned. Even so, there's no doubt, none, that this reflected her state of mind. Jackie needed security. She needed to be protected. In her mind, there was only one person who could offer this, 
Aristotle Onassis. More from my conversation with Clint Hill. I think it's conventional wisdom that, the, but you tell me what you think, but the conventional wisdom is that she married him because I think the famous quote about how it's not safe in America and they're killing Kennedys, my kids are not safe, that kind of thing, and that he offered her all the security and privacy that she wanted at that time, plus financial security beyond belief. Is that a fair characterization of her thoughts, you think? I think it's exactly the case. Okay. I think that's exactly what happened. Okay. Why she married him, that's exactly the reason. Of course, this wasn't known at the time, and the notion that Jackie would marry Onassis, well, that was just crazy. But this was 1968, everything was crazy. Assassinations, riots, Vietnam, social division, violent crime had doubled since 1960. If confidence and optimism had greeted the dawn of the decade, they had long since evaporated, replaced by cynicism and distrust. Turn on, tune in, drop out, one countercultural saying went. And one of the biggest songs of the year, Simon and Garfunkel's Mrs. Robinson, spoke to a nation adrift and in need of heroes. Where have you gone, Joe DiMaggio, the song asked. A nation turns its lonely eyes to you. There were no more heroes. They'd all been killed. In August, the frustration, the rage, the sense of hopelessness exploded at the Democratic Convention in Chicago. Young Americans took to the streets, and cops attacked them with a viciousness and ferocity that stunned the nation. The whole world was watching. It seemed America had gone mad. For Jackie, it was just more validation for what she had decided to do, marry Aristotle Onassis. In August, Ted Kennedy, the surviving Kennedy brother, flew to Greece with Jackie, and while she went shopping, he negotiated a prenuptial agreement with Ari. Incredibly, just about everyone remained clueless that they would actually marry. For example, the June issue of Cosmopolitan listed 25 men who possibly could marry Jackie, Onassis wasn't even listed. That's how completely unlikely it seemed. Here's University of Virginia historian Larry Sabato. The press really hadn't focused on Onassis very much. Uh, Lord Harlech was, was one. Uh, it seemed to be about right. A British lord, uh, well-respected in Britain, a dashing figure on his own. We wanted someone who filled JFK's void for Jackie. Uh, and we'd always imagined that happening. Uh, others said, no, she'll never be remarried. How could she ever match what she had with, with JFK? That was part of the problem. How could anyone fill JFK's shoes? A good-looking, powerful, wealthy, charismatic man, the president, for God's sakes, JFK was irreplaceable. And the prospect of Jackie marrying Onassis unthinkable. But let's come back to something I discussed in the very first episode of this series. If you stood John F. Kennedy and Aristotle Onassis next to each other, you might have thought these guys have nothing in common. After all, JFK was tall, sophisticated, and charming. He looked like a movie star, and his quick wit made women swoon. Onassis, on the other hand, was short and squat. It was said he had the face of a gangster. He came off as greedy and abrasive. But now consider the similarities. They were both 
wealthy, hyper-competitive, super-confident overachievers. Kennedy was smooth in public, a Pulitzer Prize-winning author and one of the most eloquent speakers of the 20th century. As for Onassis, here's what one Jackie biographer, Sarah Bradford, says. He was hideous physically, but he had enormous magnetic charm. That charm and a true zest for life came through easily, and not just in Greek, but English, French, and Spanish, sophisticated languages in which Jackie was also fluent. Onassis could skin you alive in a business deal by day, but then at night, talk for hours about art, music, and poetry. Women loved Onassis, and of course, the bottomless wealth. But beyond all that, Jackie feared for her safety and that of her children. Here's biographer Pamela Keogh. There was violence and uproar, yep. fires in the street, uh, politicians, public figures being, you know, assassinated in cold blood. And, you know, as Jackie said, my kids are next. So what Onassis offered her was a haven, safety, a respite from, the, from again, the chaotic, craziness, insanity that was America in 1968, 1969. Yeah, that's all true. And, you know, when people look at that, you know, if, if they had considered Jackie's situation within the context that you described, I think. Which history, was history. Perfect. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Uh, and yet, you know, my sense is that uh, a lot of people were disappointed when they married because, and this is a selfish uh, thing, I think, on uh, on the part of others, uh, they wanted Jackie to kind of remain, you know, the the widow uh, you know, the wife sure. of the martyred president and everything, because that's what, sure. uh, it, so when she went and married some, uh, grubby foreigner, uh, it kind oh, of, uh, he was smooth. He wasn't grubby. Oh, I know. Well, I'm saying that, yes. that, that, that's what they Mediterranean. thought. Mediterranean. He was Mediterranean. Yes. But, <laughs> but, but that's what they thought. At one point, a friend told Jackie, if you marry him, you're going to be knocked off your pedestal. Jackie's response that's fine with me. I never wanted to be on a pedestal in the first place. And some people thought marrying Onassis was a good move. Jackie's gang, the milieu, the upper class, you know, her friend in New York City, they were fine. They were probably, they, they thought marrying Onassis was a, was a positive move. It's kind of the people, I would say 80% of America, who didn't really know what her life was like. And yes, they would want her to be like the widow Kennedy and, you know, be dragged out at, you know, whatever, you know, every year to, to light a candle or do something. And there was someone else who approved of Jackie marrying Onassis. Of all people, it was Rose Kennedy, the late president's mother. She had known Onassis for years and liked him. Here's what Rose said, and I'm quoting, With contemplation, it seemed to me that Jackie deserved a full life, a happy future. Jack had been gone five years, thus she had plenty of time to think things over. She was not a person who would jump rashly into anything as important as this, so she must have her own very good reasons. I decided I ought to put my doubts aside and give Jackie all the emotional support I could in what I realized was bound to be a time of stress for her in the weeks and months ahead. When she called, I told her to make her plans as she chose to do and to go ahead with them with my loving good wishes, end quote. This stamp of approval meant the world to Jackie. But Jackie's own mother, Janet, disapproved. That's because Onassis had previously had an affair with Lee, her daughter, and Jackie's sister. She tried to talk Jackie out of the marriage and failed. The bottom line is this. After all she'd been through, 
In the fall of 1968, Jacqueline Kennedy was still just 39 years old. She had decades ahead of her and wanted to have a life on her terms, and she was entitled to do so. Meantime, the prenuptial agreement was hammered out between Ari and Andre Meyer, Jackie's financial advisor. Jackie would get $3 million up front, the equivalent of about $22 million today, plus interest on trust funds that were set up for Caroline and John. In return, Jackie gave up her rights under a Greek law that could have given her at least one-eighth of Onassis's net worth if he died, plus gobs of cash for her kids. And that was it. When word got out, Clint Hill got a phone call from Jackie's Secret Service agent, John Walsh. I was disappointed, somewhat disgusted, because I didn't have a very high opinion of him. I couldn't quite see the two of them together. Walsh couldn't either and asked Hill to come up to New York and talk Jackie out of it. He was very loyal to President Kennedy, and he just didn't like this idea of her marrying uh, Onassis. And uh, I tried to him, it's not my place to do that. And it, she had all the advice she needed from Ted Kennedy, her brother-in-law. And he was fully aware of everything that was going on. So. The five-year widowhood of Jacqueline Kennedy is about to end in a way that's caught the whole world by surprise. The news was stunning and took the world by surprise. It was even out-of-this-world news. When astronauts aboard Apollo 7 heard, they could only say, oh my. Reporters and photographers rushed to Scorpios, Onassis's private island, where the ceremony was to take place. His security team, a small army, was out in force and had to literally repel the journalists who tried to swarm the island. A small group was allowed in to take photos and share with everyone else. Crowded into the tiny chapel with Jackie, Caroline, and John were her reluctant mother and father-in-law, her sister Lee, and a smattering of Kennedys. The bride wore a lace-trimmed beige chiffon dress, a Valentino, that she had worn earlier that year at a friend's wedding, also an enormous ivory-colored ribbon in her hair. Jackie stood five foot seven, two inches taller than her new husband, and wore flats to try and minimize the difference. As the couple emerged from the tiny Greek Orthodox church, both garlanded with orange blossom, torrential rain was falling. According to the Greeks, this was a great omen of good luck for the newlyweds. The former Mrs. Kennedy's children, Caroline and John, were present. When you look at pictures from that day, it was October 20th, 1968, something seemed different. No longer Jacqueline Kennedy, she was now Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis. But it was more than that. She conveyed a sense that some unseen burden was being lifted from her shoulders, the burden, perhaps, of living as others thought she should, of leading a life that they, and not she, deemed suitable. A reporter asked a question, how are you feeling? Jackie's response, we are happy. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll check out my book on Jackie between her two marriages. It's called Jackie, Her Transformation, 
from First Lady to Jackie O. Available everywhere. And if you're enjoying this show, make sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts to help other history fans find it. Special thanks this week to Clint Hill, Pamela Keogh, and Larry Sabato. Thanks also to our producer, Hannah Ray Leach, sound designer and engineer, Sean Rule Hoffman, and executive producers, Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. Show theme by Josh Perlman Hall. I'm Paul Brandis. Thanks for listening. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.